welcome to yet another edition of Kent and the Steering Team, back at you again for another week. Um, as always, you're joined by myself, Phil, my good mate, Drew. Drew, how are you? I'm not too shabby. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, though, we are missing our good friend, Kent. We are. Um, Kent is actually uh, trying to work out why T is for twangs. Anyway, on with the show. Um, <laughs> here we are. We're back again. Recording. We're back again. I feel like we've never left. No, exactly. Now, we say <laughs> that in, in jest. It's because... Um, We're getting a head shake again. Yes, Sarah Moon and I are off adventuring the world at this stage. Well, right now, well, not right now. Right now, we're sitting here recording this, and Sarah's playing. Playing? No, she's not playing Sims. She's uh, doing SketchUp work for a concept of mine. Um, Indeed, and while you two are currently um, jet setting around, I am jet setting around my day off because, as always, this will be up on a Thursday. Correct. And that is my new day off. Correct, and hopefully you remember that in tune with Days Off is Upload Podcast Day. Yes, yes, I will remember, I won't forget again. (laughs) No, so, yes, hopefully this has been uploaded on a Thursday. one time. It's fine, it's alright. Yeah, so that means that uh, we are pre-recording, this is we're pre-recording this in the month of April, early April. Of April? Of course this is going to be uploaded in April still. May, April. April. May, April. Uh, yeah, so pre- pre-recording this early April. Um, now, this episode is... So that's why Drew said that, ha ha ha, feels like we've never left. Because <laughs> we're still here, hours later. Because it's been two days of camping out uh, and here doing episodes. A lot of, well, doing a lot of uh, procrastinating and a little bit of recording. Indeed. Um, that's the Kansas Steering Team way. There wouldn't be any other way of doing it. Okay, what I thought for this episode... Yes, was, what, what did you think? What I thought was, so yesterday for us, Wednesday the 3rd of April, we were, the yes. 3rd of April, we were talking yes. about, or we were having lunch and we were talking about film and I just started rattling off some questions and I thought they were interesting questions because I'm sure I'm not the only one out there that's considered or thought about it. Maybe I am, but it doesn't matter, just don't listen to this episode if you don't find it interesting. Mm. But I thought the questions were good, so I thought that I thought that we should stop the conversation where we were at yesterday and then we should redo and then also continue the conversation here Indeed, because I yes. think it's quite interesting and you know the knowledge um, I like the way they explain it and therefore I think it would be great for the listeners to hear this sort of stuff so what you're saying is you want to pick my brain about movies correct and about the uh, behind the scenes correct okay where do you want to start well the first point that I have here I don't remember why I wrote it down now it says uh, of course first question yep. there so terrific great off uh, great start here <laughs> first question here um <laughs> It says, how is film made? Now, that's not, now, that doesn't relate to how is the actual print made. I guess this question relates down to more, uh, how, what is the sequence? As in, I don't know if you know this, but, but you know, um, a writer or a creator comes up with an idea. Let's say it's an original so, idea. Someone has a pitch. Someone will have a pitch. Would that be a director, a producer, a creator, a writer? Could be any of them. Would it normally be specifically Norm- one of those? Normally, it's the writer or the director. It can be the producer mm. as well. But, like, is it exclusively those guys? Or would it be some random guy off the street coming into a studio and going, I have an idea for you. And then the studio going, here's some money, sit in the corner. We're going to go and think about this for a while. 50 years ago, yes, that was... The when method. it was Rocky. <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah, when it, when it was Rocky. But, yeah, 50 years ago, it was... You could just go up to the studio and go, hey, I had an idea, mm-hmm. and they would be more open to mm-hmm. listening. Now, everything is done through people. Yeah. You need to have an agent who will talk to their agent. Mm-hmm. And you've heard the phrase, I'll have my people call your people. Yeah. That has never been truer than it is now. It's not the kind of Free world. age where... You could be the go-getter that just goes out and and asks like that. You, you don't have that kind of access anymore. Sure, sure. Um, okay, then. So then I guess one of those four exclusive people is a producer, director, writer, yeah, um, executive producer, anyone, or actor like even, yeah. um, has an idea, pitches it to the studio, the studio goes, sure, let's go ahead and does it, yeah. uh, do it. Yeah. Um, at that stage then what happens next the producers are assembled or is it the writers are sent off by a studio or is it that 
a director is brought on board to start and then they can go off and organize the people? Well, it depends on where it's going. So if it's, if you're going, let's say you were going to Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. would Warner Brothers want to finance it or would they want to funnel it through a smaller production company that they have a deal with? Yep. So weirdly, not a, not a fantastic example, but the movie Tower Heist mm-hmm. springs to mind because it was produced by Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. So James Packer and Brett Ratner's now defunct company, they produced... They went the, defunct in it, based yeah, on... Based on Brett Ratner. Yeah. yeah. Wow, so they dissolved it rather than... Uh, well, the company, the, company, the company's gone. They've kicked them out, but they're not doing anything sure. now. They're, they're basically dead. Um, but yeah, I, you would either do it through the studio or you would do it through a small company like that and then have the studio distribute the film. Mm-hmm. So in this instance, Rat Pack was owned by Warner Brothers because mm-hmm. they they just dealed that way. So mm-hmm. the movie was made financed by Rat Pack, but then Warner Brothers is the distributor. Yeah. So it gives it the big studio name for the mm-hmm. movie that isn't necessarily made by them. Would that be the same for, say, Marvel, who ended up making Iron Man and then got... To- paramount to produce it yeah so to distribute it yeah so marvel marvel's an interesting case marvel poured all their money from all facets of the marvel company so we're talking the comics whatever film division they had back then their television division they poured everything into getting iron man made Mm -hmm. because they were still independent they had a distribution deal with paramount yep for Iron Man and Marvel, it was the first movie that they fully produced on their own as their own studio. It wasn't made by Paramount with Marvel there. Or Fox. It was on Marvel, Marvel yeah. as a company hired all the crew, did all of that and made the movie. Marvel the company. Mm-hmm. They made the movie. Paramount distributed it, mm-hmm. and it was it was like Rocky. It was this mm-hmm. success story about the underdog that came through. Absolutely, and yeah. It went from there. Um, and it went from there, and yeah. Of course, we now know Disney went on and bought Marvel for four billion dollars, and still lets them operate as their own company because they realize it bloody works. In the sa- in the same way, Pixar still operates as their own company. Yeah. Lucasfilm operates as their own company. I appreciate that about Disney, the fact that they not only, okay they're buying things out, but that's fine because they're still letting them operate as separate things just because the parent company is someone else. Well, we have Steve Jobs to thank for the Pixar deal. Mm-hmm. Basically, Disney had the rights to the Pixar films that were made in conjunction between the studios. Yeah. And Disney were going to go ahead and start making sequels to Pixar films mm-hmm. with their own animation team that would have looked terrible, been mm-hmm. inferior movies, but because Pixar weren't interested in going the way they wanted to go, they said, fine, we'll do it without you because we have the right to. Mm-hmm. Um, the head of Pixar, John Lasseter, went to his old buddy Steve Jobs, who started Pixar with him, and said, look, this is happening. Steve Jobs at this point was one of the biggest men on the planet, given his ownership and control of Apple, the products he'd made, and also the fact that he was, at the time, the highest um, the highest single shareholder in Disney, owning 7% of the company himself. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So together they went into Disney and went, right, as the uh, highest shareholder, this is what we propose. We will sell you Pixar and then, yeah, you can make these movies, but Pixar retains control of that. Mm -hmm. Pixar will make the sequels and John Lasseter will go from not only being the head of Pixar to being the head of the entire Walt Disney Animation Division. Until it worked. Until recently. And Disney knew. Disney knew that they were in a in a bind. They had to either go with it or let themselves sink. Because Pixar was getting offers from every other studio. Mm-hmm. Because they all wanted to partner with the people that made Toy Story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there you go. So, that's how so, that kind of thing happened. Yeah. So, it, it starts with going to the studio. Um the studio gives you the money to create what Mm -hmm. they call a spec script 
which is just a first run, like like a first draft, mm-hmm. that gives you an idea of everything. Is there From, much? Is there a significant amount of detail to that, or is it rather rough, just kind of outlining things? Fairly, and, fairly rough. Yeah, it's like, yep, yeah, cool. This is sort of what's transpiring here, there, yeah, yeah. Bits of dialogue mm-hmm. here and there, just so you have enough of an idea. Then they go, yep, cool, we like the concept, here's some mm-hmm. studio notes uh, from the big wigs, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe it's a comedy and the head of comedy reads it and goes, cool, make this bit more like this, or yep. aim for this here. Gives them notes. Se- either sends the writer back to do another draft, or says, cool, thank you for your contribution, we're going to bring another writer mm-hmm. in now, and they're going to have a crack at what you've written, mm-hmm. and polish it a little bit. Mm-hmm adapt it a little bit yeah so it goes from there it eventually gets into a place where they go yep you know what we're happy with the script this is what we want to film they then start assembling a team so it'll start with an in-house producer whether it's from one of these small companies or from a larger company Mm -hmm. you'll have a production team where you'll have your producers who will then go on and hire a director yeah they'll hire um, with the director, they'll hire their actors and they'll start assembling their team. Mm-hmm. The director, Editors, cinematographers. Yeah, the uh, director has a lot of say in this. Yeah. But the producers will always have final say. The producer is boss. And that's something that I that that's what sparked this conversation. Yes, I yeah. asked you what is a producer. What's a producer's role? Because I always thought that I always thought that a producer literally had the wallet and would open the wallet and go, "Here you go, here's the money." And I thought that they were just funding the director's expedition. They, That's what I always and, thought. And they are, but the director can't make a move without the producers okay. Which I didn't know. I thought that there was literally just the producer would sit there in the back and go, oh, there's money, so I'm going to invest this much money into it and I expect this much amount back, my full amount back, and I'm going to get some of the the earnings. That's my job. See, I'm going to go sit on a beach somewhere. That's what I thought that they were. That's more the executive producer that's going to go sit on the beach because they're the ones, they get their credit primarily for putting up the money or for having some kind of contribution in there that requires a credit, but they're not necessarily the most hands-on aspect of the production. Now, now so, I, th- I thought based on the title being executive producer, it sounds like it's higher up than a producer. So therefore, I thought they were the ones that might have... Still not as much input as a director, because I think thought that the director was boss. Yeah. I thought that the executive producer would have some say in it, because they've got more money invested, and the producer was just, oh, well, I'm going to produce a little bit, I'm going to give you a little bit, I'm going to... And they were just kind of like the little guy putting in a little bit of money. But no, it turns out the executive producer is more just the superficial title yeah. that actually someone that is just giving some money yeah. and sitting on a beach somewhere. So Steve, Steven boss. Spielberg has hundreds of credits of executive producer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because his company Amblin are producing yeah. so many films and television shows frequently. And it's Why good. Is- he, like, they know the power of putting his name on the product. Exactly. It, it, and it works for him as well. If I invest a little bit in this, I'll get a lot back. So yeah. I put my name on it. Yeah. Yeah, what in that case where Steven Spielberg is the owner, I guess, of Amblin, yeah, and a co-owner of DreamWorks, yeah, what's the benefit of it saying produced by Steven Spielberg, not not a film by Amblin? Well, it'll always it'll, say Amblin, but not everyone's like you and me. Not everyone knows what Amblin represents. Not everyone sure. knows that it's Spielberg. I think people could take a guess at it when they see Elliot and ET yeah. in the logo, but. Why Why do we see of, often see so little, in a lot of films and TV shows, we don't see Amblin's logo appear very often, but we will see Spielberg's name appear. But the Amblin logo, even even at the end of a film where they show kind of the last, they just re-show the studios that made yep. it. We don't ever see Amblin, but we know that Spielberg's attached to it. Because it may not always be Amblin, or it may be Amblin, but they... Just the, way, the way the deal's written is such mm-hmm. that they're not such an active participant. Sure, okay. It could, it could just be that, but it, he does produce a lot of things where it's not strictly through Amblin. Mm-hmm. He does go ahead and go, yeah, cool, I want to contribute to this in some way. I want to put something to it. Mm-hmm. I want to put my name to it, or I have notes I want to help. I want to mentor somehow. Yeah. Just something in there. What was Amblin... This is an offshoot question. What was Amblin's... I don't know if you know. What was Amblin's logo when E.T. was being made? I thought Amblin came about after E.T. Okay, well, that would answer that. Um, why do we see, for example, this is another offshoot question, Jurassic Park 1 and 2, 
don't mention Amblin at all in terms of logo. We see no logo, but Jurassic Park 3 opens with the Amblin logo being rippled in water. Um, the logo wasn't used so much back when the first two films were made. Yeah, okay. So like it, like it was fairly rare. Okay. So and, but, just... but it does say an Amblin Entertainment production it does. on the credits of yeah. both those films. It does, that's true. I didn't even think about that. Um, cool, okay. So, yeah, so Steven Spielberg's often executive producer because I guess it's beneficial just to have his name attached to it. And Even Amblin produced the Flintstones movies. Yeah, they did. I think both, did. both films say a Steven Spielrock production. <laughs> so much. Um, so then a producer, though, has more say. That's why he's a producer of Jurassic a pr- a World. A producer is there day-to-day on set. Yeah. Is actively there and part of the production. Spielberg's a little harder because he's such an in-demand man that not only offers himself to everyone else's projects, but still does his own. Say the example of Ready Player One and the Post again. What was that example that you gave? Because he you, so, you say that a, a producer's on set almost all the time. Yeah, so in, in this instance, he directed two movies essentially at the same time. Mm-hmm. He shot all the footage for Ready Player One, but Ready Player One had a lengthy post-production process with all the animation, especially for all the motion capture that was yeah. done in it the motion capture was shot the same way he shot Tintin, so they shot it all on the stage with the actors and then animated over the top. Mm-hmm. So once they got all the filming out of the way, he was able to go on and make The Post with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Yeah. However, he was still in production on another movie. As a result, he was getting sent what they called dailies. He was getting, at, at the end of every day, he was getting sent basically, An update. this is what they've been doing mm-hmm. today this is where the footage is at and it's the sort of thing you'd look at on a laptop or an ipad and he'd yeah. be seeing the footage where it's at he'd be able to see the scenes the completed scenes as the effects are finished and mm-hmm. go yep cool i like that maybe change this here we yeah. need to assess this re-edit it this way something like that yeah would steven spielberg i can't remember what it if he was or not <coughs> is it is it Director ever also the producer, therefore the same man or the same person? Uh, frequently, frequently. Um, there are a number of directors that produce their own projects. Spielberg is one of them. Mm-hmm. Tim Burton's done a fair few. Um, so therefore he answers to himself, basically. Yes, but it's very rare that they are the only producer. Mm-hmm. They would have other producers as well. Sure. But would, they would be one of them. Would, would I guess, the status and therefore the reputation of someone like Burton and Spielberg give them the liberty or the freedom to uh, be more of they are their own answer or they answer to themselves and they have less responsibility or less requirement to go and speak to the studio or someone else or the same but different applied rules i feel like men men like them and james cameron and that have gotten to the position they've gotten to not by having the singular dream but by listening to the advice of others so i think a lot of it does still hinge on the fact that you do have other people around that they're speaking to Mm -hmm. and getting a more rounded opinion from rather than charging ahead with Mm -hmm. all they've got is what is in their head would a, a case where you say that the post-production of Ready Player One was a really lengthy process because mm-hmm. there was so much special effects, uh, special effects needing to be applied. Yeah. Um, so much was filmed on a, 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 soundstage. a, a soundstage kind of thing. Yeah. If Spielberg didn't have a separate role, would you say that under normal circumstances where there's no other project, he would be required to be on kind of on location with the animators there or is it really not necessary to sit there in a wheelie or like um an office chair swinging back it's, and forth waiting for them to come he'd, to he'd essentially be doing that he may spend one day in the editing room the next yeah. day with the vfx team yeah he'd be he'd just be jumping around he'd have a and week mapped out going yeah to different spots yeah. and giving the advice on hand instead he's just doing it remotely the same way you and i record our show remotely yeah frequently and we have no issues that we're in a day and age where that yeah. sort of technology is readily available and can sure. be done cool well that 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 answers that um what i found most surprising there was the fact that a director doesn't run the show um well they they do to an extent but it's not there the, the, the buck doesn't stop with them it's not the producer the I, director was is just merely a 
a point of steering for the producer who may not necessarily is it a creative thing or is it that the producer's got other things to worry about as in the, the entire production the director is there to real to give to give reality to the creative vision that mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. right they're, they're there to interpret the story the way i explained it to you yesterday was using a retail business model let's say the head of your studio is um the store the store manager yeah then you have a sales manager who looks after all all the different departments Mm -hmm. right they're the producer your department manager Mm -hmm. is the director they choose how it's going to play out Mm -hmm. they overlook the setting the design the style how it's all going to be be filmed cinematography but but none of that can be achieved without them going up to their immediate head Mm -hmm. and going hey this is our plan yay Mm -hmm. nay this is what we want to achieve this is why Mm -hmm. and this is the funding we need to do this Can a producer overrule in the sense that, I mean, obviously they guess they can if they have final say. Yeah. But is it common or is it actually not that rare that a producer will go, actually, no, I think the direction should be this, do it like this? The producer doesn't normally interfere with the direction mm-hmm. of the film per se. Would it only happen if it was someone like Spielberg with a lot of directorial credit to their name or do they still not get a say? I think there's a lengthy process before they hire the right person, and, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes they hire yes-men. Mm-hmm. There are times where they hire directors who they know will just give them what they want. Is Joe Johnston Johnson? No. A yes-man based no, on Jurassic Park 3? No, he was allowed to do what he wanted, and Spielberg says that himself in the behind the scenes of that mm-hmm. film. Um, Joe went to him after they made the first one, because Joe worked on the first two films. Mm-hmm. And he went to Stephen and goes, hey, if you're looking at making a sequel, I'd love to direct it. And Stephen goes, look, I really want to do a sequel. I actually want to direct one myself. However, if we, after that, if we decide, yeah, we want to go do a third one, it's yours. Yeah. It's 100%. It's your movie. You make it. Big disaster. That's where the Jurassic Park series all fell apart. In that moment, over that conversation. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Shame from the guy that made Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And the man that made um, Captain America First Avenger. He redeemed himself. I love he, that. Yeah. He also made The Rocketeer, which is an excellent old Disney film, for those of you that have never seen it. I'm starring Bruce Campbell. Campbell. I love Bruce Campbell. I'm going to have to go and Young look Bruce this movie. Campbell, I'm going to go and look it up. Holy crap. You also, Bruce Campbell, of course, yeah. first time I saw him was in a Herbie movie. So, oh, uh, Love Bug <laughs> remake. Yeah. The 90s Love Bug. <laughs> with, with the evil Herbie. Yeah, Horace. I love that I love film. that film so That's much. That's childhood. Daryl Hannah's in that film as well. <laughs> Long before she played a villain in Kill Bill. Oh, God. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to go look Rock it here. Yeah, the, the, Rocketeer. the Rocketeer. Okay, I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, um, old Disney film. <laughs> so, so a producer wouldn't wouldn't interfere. They would just be more there to be like. Uh, I find uh, it's yeah. starting to interfere more and more, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'll I'll use the mm-hmm. same example I used for you yesterday. Look at Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. a movie that has divided a lot of people without them even watching it, purely mm-hmm. because of the behind the scenes. So Brian Singer directed the film and he was so passionate about making this movie and then he stopped appearing on set several times Mm. during the production. He claimed there was a family problem. It still seems really vague, but Graham King, the main producer of this movie, um, his company GK Films was the one, like Mm -hmm. the driving force of getting this film made he's gone and, and said, nope, you need to be back to set. This is not acceptable what you're doing. Mm. You've said you have to go home to a family thing mm-hmm. and yet we've got people that have seen you somewhere completely different mm-hmm. at that time. You need to be here. You signed a contract. Mm-hmm. This is your job. And he abandoned it again and they went, right, drawing the, land in the, drawing the line in the sand, you're fired. They took two weeks over Thanksgiving for everyone to have some time off. Have some time off from filming. When they came back, they brought in a new director. They reshot some scenes, reworked it a little bit, and then the new director stuck around throughout the post production. 
uh, Colin Trevorrow from um, Star Wars Episode Nine. Uh, we've discussed great lengths off air how he, we actually don't think Colin Trevorrow is a particularly good writer based on what we've seen for Jurassic World. No, 1, 2, no, no, no. I'm, I'm. I don't know. He's brought on a he's brought on a female writer to join him for Jurassic World Three to co-write the film. Good. And I'm hoping that brings in something refreshing. Not. Not necessarily because he's brought on a woman to write with him. I think that's an excellent thing in of itself. Just to get someone's input. But to have an outside opinion that mm. isn't his writing partner, Derek Connolly, like, that it, it's yeah. someone else that's not intimately attached to the whole thing. Do you thing. think that was a producer's kind of uh, whisper in the ear? I hope that was a Spielberg comment. I really hope it was. Because um, I I like Jurassic World, yeah. I do, and I've watched it several times now. Did I? I like it. I really like Fallen Kingdom. I think it's so much better, and I like that they made a claustrophobic mansion thriller with dinosaurs, because that's not something I ever expected out of a Jurassic Park film, and I didn't realise I, I would want it until I saw it. Mm-hmm. But they need to get back on track. They the these aren't meant to be independent stories. It was designed as a three act trilogy, and each one's been not very strong. No, so they need to be, to be able to bring it home, tie it up, and put the bow around it. Which is what Trevorrow said that he was doing all along. Was kind of the third one. He kind did. Of the Apparently, thing. this is all building. To um, it. Which we haven't seen any sort of building in any sort of direction. It's kind of been a bit like yeah, you know, rockets off in different directions here. Um, I, I mentioned Star Wars because he's been fired off of the of Episode Nine. Gently removed, I think. Was that a producer, a producer think, input, or do I you think, think that, that was, was a, uh, that was a Kathleen Kennedy okay. decision? Okay, hundred percent. So she, you reckon she made the the call? I reckon she did. Based on she's she's been around the industry long enough. Uh, she's a, a tough she's, cookie. She, oh, you don't fuck with Kathleen Kennedy. She started out as Spielberg's <laughs> PA on yeah. Raiders. Uh, it's amazing how she's gone from there to she's, where she She's is. married to Frank Marshall, who uh, they have the Kennedy Marshall Company together. Mm-hmm. But Frank Marshall is one of Spielberg's original film producers. Yeah, so and they've all, the three of them have been making movies together for nearly four decades now. I love that they've they've kind of migrated into Luke, what was George Lucas's company. Well, George was very happy that she was the one taking over the yeah. company because they worked together on yeah. all of Indiana Jones, mm. and he felt that like he was giving it to a friend. That yeah. was his way of handing it over. He felt that even though he'd sold mm. off to Disney, at least it was still in the hands of the people closest to him. Do you reckon that um, with Trevorrow's exit, that was down to his writing direction for the third one, or do you reckon it was down to what she'd seen on the other side of was, the, the was, Spielberg friendship, which is the Jurassic World side of it? To my understanding, it was neither. It was the it was the little independent movie he made in between the Jurassic films called The Book of Henry, which absolutely tanked. I didn't never even heard of that. The Book of Henry, it was meant to be this really intimate indie film that that was meant to make a bit of money and do well with the critics, and it just did terribly, and and he lost it right after that came out. Right, so you think that it was because... I I think that did it. I think that was the nail in the coffin. They went, you know what, this guy is a little all over the place. We don't want him to be the one that does this the final of these yeah and and i, I love bringing that, jj back as a wise move yeah i love that universal gave the confidence for him to be able to be almost in command of three Jurassic. not not spielberg gave him that i can't believe spielberg did that what was it what why would spielberg do because that? because spielberg loved his overall three-part story how? Which, which is why I'm really curious. But yeah, Spielberg also likes popcorn movies, and he has said in several interviews that he likes every movie. Like he just he doesn't discriminate. He likes watching anything. It doesn't even when a movie is bad, he still finds the good and just enjoys. But it then therefore, flip. but then therefore, Spielberg, his judgment is flawed. Yeah, I, so I therefore, think it's grossly he's not. Flawed. Universal should not put the faith into someone like him then no but at the same time there were a lot of ups and downs throughout the thing of jurassic world there were two writers originally brought on board to write jurassic Mm. world rick jaffa and amanda silver who wrote rise of the planet of the apes yeah 
and they had a really clever concept for Jurassic World and that seemed to fall by the wayside but they still get writer's credit on Jurassic World anyway I, I yeah look I, I think that they should not have made um, Jurassic World films at all if they didn't have a solid story and again I don't think Spielberg should have been the one that gives the call or had the permission to give the, the writing to someone else even though that's what Michael Crichton kind of wanted um, well, Crichton, like, all these all these novelists were very happy to leave their work in Spielberg's hands. Because he'd done Crichton such amazing was, things back when. He did, and Michael Crichton was happy leaving Spielberg with Jurassic Park. He was... Um, Urge, the author of Tintin, only wanted Spielberg to make Tintin. Did not want anyone else to touch it. Why... Up until that point, I don't think Spielberg had done a dud film at all or been involved with a dud film. I can't think of a dud film that back until... Yeah, there's one. Which one? Um, uh, it's got John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in it. It's got the Blues Brothers, which is quite funny because uh, he also acts in the Blues Brothers. <laughs> yeah. In the... Cl- in the um, was it the Cook County Assessor's Office? He's the clerk. Um, no, Spielberg, as far as... Dud films. Where is it? I think it's called 1941. And it just completely misses the mark as a film. Mm. Apparently. I've never watched it. I've got Directed it in this by box him or set. produced by him? Directed. Right. This is a film that he directed. Uh, filmography director. Where is it? Here, in 1979, he directed a film called 1941. 1941. You and your slow internet. Hysterical Californians prepare for a Japanese invasion in the days after Pearl Harbor. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. The writers of Back to the Future. The film absolutely tanked. Horribly. Staggering. I yeah, okay. So he has that in him to Universal do. Pictures and Columbia Pictures present. Wow. Yeah. Why an, would two an A team production of a Steven Spielberg film, nineteen forty one. Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Gray, Murray Hamilton, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Warren Oates, Treat Williams, Nancy Allen. I still love that uh, as a tangent. Dan Aykroyd has almost two completely different looks to him. There's the Blues Brothers look where he's the tall, thin one. Yep. Then there's literally every other film he's ever done where he's basically a shorter, fatter version of himself. He changed, exactly. He changed who he was. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Did he eat the other Blues Brother? Anyway. Um, oh, John. Yeah. John, <laughs> John Belushi. Uh, this other question that I have is, is if a writer writes it all, yeah. If they're brought in to write it all, I use this as the, the example for writer. If a writer writes something and, you know, a writer, do they not, for the most part, write annotations as in, and stage directions and stuff like that, and, and, and write setting points as in the room looks like this, in this sort of place, this is where we are, we're in uptown, yeah. Montana, blah, 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 in an old rickety house, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Person stands by the window, looks wistfully out the window, that kind of thing, and then writes all the the actual script. Does a writer not shape a film rather than a director and a producer and an actor and everyone else? Does the writer not do the biggest bit, which is to actually write the direction? And the, a producer just literally says, and action, and then says, hey, put the can, camera over here. A writer can put a certain level of direction there, mm. but the actual style is going to come from the director. The director is... The director's like the foreman. Mm-hmm. He's making sure that everything's ticking along, but he also has a creative vision as well. And part of that is by working within a team of like-minded people. I, um, Tim Burton and Rick Heinrichs yeah. is the pairing I think of. So Tim Burton directs, Rick Heinrichs is his production designer. The two of them went to uh, Cal Arts together studying animation and went on to make movies together. Mm-hmm. As a production designer, Rick Heinrichs creates the physical, the physicalities and the looks of the world, um, but he does it based on the descriptions of his director. Yeah, is that why all Tim Burton films look like they're in the same world? 
Yeah, so Tim Burton yeah. has a very clear, distinctive vision of of uh, his films yeah. with a with a gothic look that also matches this pastel paradise of the fifties as well. Yeah, Edward right. Scissorhands is a wonderful example of that. And even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you see it. Yeah, um, the the Oompa Loompas have upturned shoes and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Okay, so okay, so yeah, right. It doesn't necessarily do that. A cinematographer. Do they not literally put the camera on a tripod and go, okay, the director says action, and the director says, point the camera over there, then go over there. Or is that a cinematographer that says, we can shoot it like this, or we can do this, or I'm going to go cinematographer dictates how it will be shot. Not all cinematographers actually get behind the camera. Some of, of course, do. a cameraman can some, do some, the, some the Some of them operate that, but, their cameras. But so, so say, for example, like a, a tracking shot, is that a director that says, I want a tracking shot here? Is it the cinematographer that says, Hey, 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 director, we should do this as a tracking shot. I think it's a mutual discussion in many in many yeah. cases. The director can have these ideas and then go to the cinematographer and go, hey, um, I'm thinking we try a, a shot like this here. The cinematographer may go, yeah, cool, that'll work based on A, B, and C. Or he may go, that won't work based on A, B, and C. Do you want that shot? We will have to restructure it to do it this way. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's amazing how how <sighs> it it really is run like a business. It's it, that's why they say the business of movie making. Mm. It's not just yeah, let's rock up. We've got the cameras. The Everyone says, know your lines and just go action. There is so much planning and effort that goes into every little thing. Yeah. Even something as simple as let's say you've got a scene that's being shot in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You need to think about the fact that you have to. Tables, chairs, other people around. Tables, chairs, other people. You have to have extras there. You have to have them costumed. No one thinks about that, but when a costume designer has to design the outfits Mm -hmm. for the characters, they're not just designing all the key characters. They have to design the outfits of every single extra as well. Yeah. But you have the extras to worry about. You have the set design to worry about. You even need to think about the finer things Mm -hmm. like, cool, what sort of glasses are going to be on the table? How is the menu going to look? Does the place have a logo? Does that sit on the menu? How do you do it? Jesus, there's so much to think about. Then you get to your main actors and even your secondary mm-hmm. and your your extras. They all need to go through light. Um, they all need to go through hair and makeup because they all need to wear makeup. If none, if one person yeah. in there is not wearing makeup and they come up on camera under one of those lights, they're just going to look pale as a ghost. How would they do it? Makeup runs. We know makeup runs. Yep. How would a... If someone's meant to do a scene where they're crying, how do they... And they're not meant to be wearing makeup in the scene, but obviously they're wearing makeup, just make, wearing makeup to make it look like they're not wearing makeup, and they cry. Obviously not a makeup artist, but... But they have makeup that can withstand... Crying. A bit of moisture, yeah. Okay. Um... This is a, a really obscure question, but say, to, to your point there, we, you mentioned, um, again, if they're in a restaurant, does a restaurant have a logo? Is a logo on the menu? Yep. Would they have to, I guess if they're doing it as a false made-up company, would they have to register and trademark an artificial logo in a film? Or if someone then made, if they don't, and someone made a, bil- a business and called it, I guess, like Bubblegum Shrimp, for example used yep. a logo in a film as their logo and said, hey, look, we're reading this movie. Could they be sued because they're using intellectual property from a film or is it, I don't know. This is So if it's, if it's being made for the film, it's covered by the copyright of the film. Anyway. Okay, so it's still co- Which, it's covered by the yeah, creative yeah, it's, yeah, license of the film or, or the, cre- the, the yeah. creative commons license. But it okay. covers everything that's within there as a work of fiction created by these people for this company who owns the rights. Right. If something is being used in there, uh, let's say they shoot a scene at McDonald's, Mm -hmm. promotional consideration or special thanks to McDonald's pops up in the credits. For sure. Uh, These days, the biggest thing that you'll notice at the, uh, at the end of a, um, at the end of the credits will be, the use of tobacco in this film has been um, is purely incidental and has not in any way um, uh, been, been paid for or used for advertising. The tobacco industry has not paid us to feature their products in this film. 
I didn't know that. That's very interesting. That's only in the last two or three years they've started putting the anti-tobacco things in the credits. That's very interesting. I mean, I mean, it definitely helps shape certain characters, I guess, to have them smoking. But well, Disney have a no smoking policy now. What are we going to do now that they're in Fox? Notice Tony Stark doesn't smoke anymore. Never has a cigar. After Iron Man Two, never has a cigar ever. What about again? Fox Studios owned by yeah, Fox will be Fox. Century Fox. Fox, I'm sure, will have all of that, but under the Disney brand, under the Disney name, and even though Marvel doesn't technically use the Disney logo at the beginning, they still they don't do it. Okay, and it's, um, it, but yeah, they had a they had a real struggle when they did the um, the Mary Poppins film, Saving Mr. Banks, yeah. about the creation of yeah. the film. Because Walt was a chain smoker. Yeah. So the way they worked around it was that they would have clips where someone would be coming into Walt's office and you'd have smoke. Tom Hanks as Walt and he'd be putting the cigarette down on the ashtray. Yeah. So it would allude to, yep, he'd been doing it, but it would never show him actually taking a puff. That's fascinating. I like that. Um, okay, so a writer doesn't run it and just like a cinematographer... They all kind of work with the director, yep. I guess. Okay, everyone kind of working together to tr- achieve something. Yep. Director's kind of the one that has to report to the producer rather than a yep. writer or cinematographer going straight to the producer. They all have to go through the director. So I guess the director's the one that they're all mates with, look out for the producer. Department I guess manager, joke. sales manager. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, we, we spoke about sequels. I... I completely forgot about the Indi- Indiana Jones films and said is yeah you wondered um, about Spielberg and sequels. sequels I guess that besides Indiana Jones and, and, and the, the Lost, Lost World, World he doesn't really do sequels no um, and and that's from, okay. and from that I mean I guess I know that there are a couple of sequels there but nonetheless only from two series doesn't well, Jaws, mean Jaws had sequels but he didn't make them was he involved with them at all no I think he carries a producer credit on them but Nothing more. Um, he, um, yeah, like there's three Jaws sequels. There's four films in total. Um, we spoke about Tintin more. as well, and you spoke about Tintin, the fact that the writer of Tintin only wanted Spielberg involved with it. Yeah. You mentioned that Peter Jackson was in there as well. Yeah, so Spielberg was an interesting thing um, with Tintin. It, it was a long process. So he... Basically, he never grew up with Tintin. Mm-hmm. The first time he ever heard about Tintin, he was in France promoting Raiders of the Lost Ark, and there was a column with a review, and it was in French, reviewing Raiders, and he kept just seeing uh, the word Tintin popping up everywhere, and he got it translated, and turns out they were comparing Raiders to this book series called Tintin. Right. So he goes, does a bit of research, finds what Tintin is, and becomes a fan overnight, powers through, like, reads all the books, just becomes obsessed with Tintin, and goes, I want to make that movie. Turns out, Hergé, the author, also wanted Spielberg to do it, but Spielberg couldn't find a way to make it happen with the technology, not in a way that would be honourable to the text. So it kind of sat there, and then... Erge passed away before Spielberg could meet him in person. Mm-hmm. And That's a shame. Yeah, I, I think they only just missed each other. And then when he he met and he went and met his widow and she said he only wanted you to make it like I'm giving you the rights. You've got it there. Mm-hmm. The rights lapsed. Eventually Peter Jackson picks up the rights. And it, and it gets back around to Spielberg. And between them, they're like, oh, you're a fan. Oh, you're a fan. Because Peter Jackson grew up reading them from childhood. Would it be Peter Jackson directed with Peter Jackson's company, Wingnut? Wingnut produced it with Amblin. Co-production. Wow. And co-distributor of studios. Because Paramount and Columbia distributed the film together. Okay, so they're just absolutely together. Oh, as well as Nickelodeon movies. Of course. It, it was it was this monstrous pairing, five different companies that came together to make it happen. Big film. Big film, very big film, based on two or three separate novels that all got woven together. 
Do we know if it was like Peter Jackson, uh, literally everything else by Peter Jackson and incredibly over budget and... Uh, no. It wasn't. It, it so that was, was the Spiel, really, that was the Spielberg side of it then. It was a really straightforward production. A real Spielberg production. Yeah. Except for Jurassic Park 3. They, they went and shot it in New Zealand on the sound stages. Mm-hmm. They had the cast come over there to do it. They did all of it in motion capture because it was the only way they could see forward to giving it the aesthetic of the books mm-hmm. and still give it that that feel. Mm-hmm. Like they they knew the technology would be the way to get it to work. And they did a test run. Peter Jackson dressed up and acted in the test footage to convince Spielberg that this was the way to do it. <laughs> and they had a CGI snowy... walking around and when he saw that he went yep this is it it's gonna work and peter jackson dressed up as captain haddock (laughs) i can picture that it's really funny i'll have to track it down and show you it is quite amusing i can picture that but yeah um originally spielberg approached no spielberg got the rights back he approached peter jackson going hey um interested in you guys doing the animation for snowy Mm mm-hmm and Peter Jackson goes, well, you're making Tintin. Why don't you do the whole thing that way? And they started looking at the technology and went, you know what, this will work. Yeah, okay. And then, and, and you, you were mentioning how, I mentioned it in conjunction with what we're talking about, sequels, yeah. in that there isn't a sequel, but you mentioned that it was interesting the way the directorial kind of view of it was meant to take. Yes. And also, not just that though, but then how it actually happened for the first Tintin so the plan they made was that Spielberg would direct the first film and Peter Jackson would produce it. Mm-hmm. Second movie would be Peter Jackson directing and Spielberg producing, and then the third one they would co-direct. Mm-hmm. We're still waiting for the second one. How long ago was the last one? Twenty eleven. Okay, so a little while ago. We're waiting. Now the Do we know anything at all about it or any rumblings or is there absolutely nothing in it? The most recent draft of the script was written by my all time favourite author, Anthony Horowitz. Really? Really, really. Has he done film? Anthony Horowitz. Yeah. Yeah, he's done film and television. He created the British television series Foil's War. Okay, okay, so he's he okay, so he's He also wrote the screenplay for the Alex Ryder movie based on his own novel okay. adapted the book. Um, why hasn't there been any directorial... Because Peter Jackson gets caught up in other projects. Like what? What's he doing right now? The Hobbit. The Hobbit caught up with The him. Hobbit was probably the biggest waste of his time in the yep. history of his life. Yeah, um, should have let Guillermo del Toro just make them and would have been fine. Should have um, just not done them at all and got involved and made three films out of the smallest book in the world. Yeah, so he did The Hobbit. <laughs> He's recently done the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old, which took the World War One footage and put it to I want to see that. So do I. I. I was just seeing it on pre-order on JB Hi-Fi's website before, so... Very keen to watch that. And now he's moved on to doing a documentary about the Beatles and about the recording of their final album. Which one was the final album? Let It Be. Or as it was originally titled, Get Back. Why did... Wait, why was Let It Be the last album? Because they took forever to get it recorded. So initially, Abbey Road was meant to be the final album. And everything about it screams that it's the final album from the cover art of them walking across the zebra crossing Mm -hmm. to even the second last track is literally titled The End with a kooky little bonus track sitting after it called Her Majesty. But every, everything about it was that this was the final album, but that album was ready before Let It Be was. And they had to just get something out. So they put it out and then... Let It Be wound up coming out a few months later, the following year, and about a month after the band broke up. Which one had a documentary attached to it? Let It Be. Let It Be. Okay, so, so as the final album so, had... Yeah, had the documentary. Okay. But it was meant to be... Like, it wasn't meant to be the last album. But the documentary got delayed, and the album got delayed. You're saying and... that the, that Let It Be, the documentary, is not available really anywhere? You can't find... Oh, uh, you can find bootlegs of it on YouTube or parts mm. of the internet, but 
there hasn't been an official release for what over 30 years what, now. what do you reckon has done that the fact that a documentary that was meant to chronicle the development of an album wound up chronicling the um, demise the demise of arguably the greatest rock band of all time do we see in that documentary is that where famous idea of Yoko Ono sitting there next to John Lennon during like discussions and stuff like that is that where that sort of footage comes from or is that just a concept made up by pop culture I believe there are elements of that footage in there but there's also footage of them literally just fighting with each other the four members of the band just arguing fighting uh, it was a time where George Harrison quit the band for a few days really yeah so he was done like the most <laughs> yeah he quit they had to woo him back a few days later and he only came back under a certain number of conditions including the fact that they stopped recording the album in a film studio and they go back to their own recording studios and just do the album properly themselves not have all the crews around mm. trying to capture every little bit of it wow okay um yeah do you think that had John and George not died or be shot or died do you think that they would have come back together again at any point and done not necessarily a reunion tour or anything like that but at least come together and just jammed or performed together again it's a very hard thing to call but I've always felt they would have found their way back to each other mm. not I, I don't look at it as a wishful thinking thing I think that the four of them just had this innate sense of brotherhood and camaraderie where they always kept finding their way back mm. the fact that the three surviving members after John died all got back together again two weeks before George died mm-hmm. like they always find a way and and even since then John and um, oh, sorry not John Paul and Ringo have featured on each other's albums over the past couple of decades I don't know if you know off the top of your head how long after the Beatles broke up did John get shot was it years later or was it not years like years and years like a decade or is I it years as in like maybe like two or three years I thought it was about a decade they broke up in early 1970 I think the best thing about the Beatles breaking up is the fact that there aren't those it meant the end of those obnoxiously awful screaming fans in literally every um, live version of any of their songs. It was a decade later. He died a decade after they broke up. Yeah, he died in 1980. It's funny, I've heard Sarah and I have both been past the uh, alleyway where he got shot. Wow. Yeah. If you go to New York, the bus tour takes you right past it. Great. You get to see and you get to see exactly where it was. Fantastic. How do I feel about seeing that? Yeah, it's a bit bit odd. Yoko still lives there, I believe. Does she not, Sarah Moon? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh, but she just stood out the front of it. Not be stalkers, because that's a bit poor taste. <laughs> but uh, literally just stood out the front and waited for it to come out. Oh, see Yoko, I know. Remember? What about that song she redid? Or she performed, <laughs> imagine? Not very well. Didn't she write that song? Did she write it? She wrote, and then they kind of took it. I didn't know that, but all I know is that that performance that she did quite recently, that recording she did quite recently of Imagine, really didn't do that song justice. That performance that I made a point of not listening to. (laughs) Oh, it's really not good. I'm not a fan. Of her, or...? Of her. I am one of those people that Bros before hoes, and she trampled that. I'm one of the people that believes that she is a significant part of the reason why the band broke up. But is the love of John and Yoko, you know, not more important to John? I don't know that that was... I don't know. I don't know. It's very, it's very easy to be subjective about 100%. From, from here, isn't it? 100%. Absolutely. But I don't know. I've... All I can go off is everything I've seen, read, heard, and, and you know, they were all very much in the public eye, so there's a lot out there, but I don't, we, John, it's very known that John was frustrated and was always looking for an outlet mm-hmm. or a way to change, mm-hmm. and that's a good portion of why they changed the game, um, 
from 1967 onwards when they changed their sound and all the music started to mm. shift into a, into a whole new genre, really. But psychedelic. I, I <laughs> always just assumed that Yoko was just the next flavor of him mm-hmm. looking for the next change, and I don't think she would have been a permanent change for him. I think it just happens that it lasted a decade and that he died before it could have the happened. next change happened for him. From there, bringing it back to... That's a very good point and yeah, interesting. And yeah, No, no, I mean, it, it, that's... See, I like picking a brain on this sort of stuff because I think you have very... You just know so much. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean, I mean, we could... We're getting towards the end of this podcast. It's not very useful. <laughs> no, 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 no. But we, during the context of we're getting to the end of this podcast... We are. And I would love for it to go on. It's now 12.51 and I know you have to go because you've got an early start and you're probably getting tired. But I'd love to go for a second episode based off this conversation alone. We, and we just, absolutely can. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, do a second one and a part two of this because it's fascinating to pick your brain yeah. based on this. And even getting back to film, my last question was going to be best director of our time and of all time but of I don't course. want you to answer that no, I don't we'll save that we're going to save that for the yeah. next one um, or next time whether that is the follow up um, that we record in a couple of days time we'll see but I would love to prick your brain further that would be a fun one uh, to let's discuss. get to our second of the week it's really hard because the topic here it almost deserves to it's be all, it's you it's a little no but I guess we I think we said we wouldn't give it to I like. I like our rule um, um, I, I would want it to go to all the filmmakers out there all the filmmakers, okay, the and filmmakers. of course that does not mean that they individually cannot run it again. But as a class, class of history, you think, filmmakers think about how much okay. it's, how much these people have given me or you mm-hmm. or anyone like us. I feel like it gives us a voice, and it, certainly growing up, it gave me something that I could link to when I couldn't find a link anywhere else. And what I'm going to do, Drew, is ask you in the next time we record, I'm going to ask you how you got inspired to do this. I know the story, but I think the listeners would love to hear that story as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I know I mean it, because again, you've yep. got a very, again, a fantastic articulation of um, answering my questions. I really appreciate that you did that. Thank you for letting me pick your brain. That's all right. I'm sure the listeners are going to like it too, because it is very interesting. Again, it's when, what I think is the good thing here is, um, when you can hear someone passionately talk about and very, very um, intelligently and with a lot of knowledge talk about something that they're interested in, it just gets really interesting and you almost, it, you can't help but be drawn into it and find it fascinating too. So even if you're not interested in how film is made and all that sort of stuff. It's hearing, always interesting to hear someone yeah, talk hearing, about exactly, something, something that, Exactly right. Yeah. And, and so that's fantastic. And I'm the same for motorsport. I, I promise you listeners, we won't do one on motorsport because I know that is such a, that's even more niche of a market. But <laughs> I am aware I find of your motorsport talk very I, interesting. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I thank you for that. Um, thank you as always for being here, Mr. Drew. And thank you for always being here, Mr. Phil. Happy to do it. Until next time, listeners. Yep. Woo!